You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 89. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find out more about the setting at metamorecity.com, and you can learn about my other works at chrislester.org. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. So, let's get started. Today I'm bringing you the conclusion of my Metamore City Christmas story, A Wizard Family Solstice. If you haven't heard the first two parts of this story, you'll want to listen to episodes 87 and 88 before continuing on with this week's episode. The following recap will contain spoilers. John Tunstall is a young wizard working as an apprentice to Artax, the owner of the Spells for You magic shop. With the holiday shopping season in full swing, their routine is disrupted by the arrival of Esmeralda Freebairn, Artax's daughter. Artax, it turns out, spent nearly twenty years living as a woman in the Sathmoran Highlands, taking the name Leia Freebairn. During this time, Leia conceived and gave birth to Esme and then trained her in the ways of magic. After Esme turned 18, Leia transformed back into Artax, and announced his intention to return to Metamore City. Esme did not respond well to this radical change in her mother, and for the last two decades, their relationship has been a strained one. Now, though, Esme has come to Artax to ask for help. For the last ten years, she has been trying to have a child of her own, but all her attempts have failed, and the fertility doctors can't find a reason why. Esme thinks it might have something to do with the unusual way she was conceived, but it's almost impossible to study oneself with one's own magic. Since Artax knows more about his time as Leia than anyone else, it stands to reason that he is Esme's best chance to find out why she can't have children. Artax agrees to help her, and he enlists the aid of John to do so. He points out that John doesn't have the same blind spots Artax does where his daughter is concerned, so he might see something the old man has missed. As they study Esme's aura under a thaumoscope, John does see some things that look strange to his novice eyes, but Artax assures him that nothing looks out of the ordinary. After an exhausting day of magical tests, Artax is stumped, and Esme is discouraged. The old man retreats to his study to do more research, refusing any offers of help. Seeing that Esme is in a vulnerable place emotionally, John invites her to go out with him for dinner. Esme agrees, but it's clear that she's more interested in commiseration than food. After a day of disappointing setbacks, a bottle of Seth Morin whiskey is calling her name. A Wizard Family Solstice a Holiday Tale of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Part 3 Do You See What I See? John and Esme got dressed for the outdoors and exited the shop through the service entrance, which deposited them in a narrow alley between two brownstone buildings. The alley ran about ten meters deep, 
ending in a pair of lift doors attached to one of the city's massive towers. They headed the opposite direction, emerging onto a sidewalk in a second-level shopping district. Snow lined the curbs of the skyway and clung to the awnings of the shops. Yule decorations were everywhere. Colorful strings of lights and evergreen wreaths and bright red ribbons with bows. The air was crisp and cold, but not frigid, and shoppers walked the pavement in a continuous throng, peering into window displays and chatting amiably. Holiday carols played from the neighborhood PA system, the speakers mounted on the poles of the street lights. High overhead, the undersides of the next layer of skyways twinkled with an array of ever-changing green, red, and yellow lights. Esme looked around at it all, her eyes wide. Stars above, she murmured. John grinned. Yeah, we do Yule in a big way around here. Do you like it? Esme blew a breath of air between pursed lips. It's gaudy and obnoxious and overwhelming. But strangely, yes. She gave John a lopsided smile. But I still want that whiskey. John stepped up to the curb and looked around, getting his bearings. He spotted a familiar street name, checked the numbers on the nearest shop, and nodded. Okay, I think there's a pub about five blocks that way. Esme stuck out one elbow toward him, her hand at her hip. Lead the way, Master Tunstall. John stared at her arm for a moment, confused, then abruptly recognized the gesture from an old movie he'd seen. Tentatively, he threaded his own arm through hers, then looked up at Esme's face. The redhead gave him a sharp nod of approval, and they started off. The walk turned out to be closer to seven blocks than five, but Esme didn't seem to mind. She took in the decorations and the crowds and the revelry like she was watching a stage performance, or some great festival in an exotic land. Then again, maybe that's exactly what the Metamorians were to a country girl like Esme. The pub, when they came to it, was a dimly lit hole in the wall, and the flag of ancient Sathmore flying above the door was the only clue to the nature of the establishment. They entered through a door of dark, heavy wood with brass accents, into a room composed mostly of the same. A banner hung over the bar, with the words, A Hundred Thousand Welcomes, in an ornate golden font. There were no carols here, no strings of lights or garland on every available surface. The patrons, mostly men, sat in twos and threes at small, round tables, or lined the stools at the bar. Conversations filled the room, echoing off the countless hard surfaces until none of them were intelligible. A small yule tree by the window was the single concession to holiday decorations. Esme let out a contented sigh. Now this feels like home. They sat at the bar, where Esme ordered for both of them without looking at the menu. The bartender, John noticed, was much more responsive than those he usually dealt with, which probably had a lot to do with the remarkable woman placing the order. She handed over her debit card, and two glasses of straight whiskey were promptly set before them. Esme tapped the bar with her fingertip, and the bartender left the bottle close at hand. She raised her glass, John copied the motion, and they clinked their glasses together. Slancha, she said, and drained her glass. 
John, by contrast, only managed to get about half of his down, before the burning liquor triggered a coughing fit. Not much for whiskey, are ya? Esme observed, refilling her glass. I... <laughs> it's a bit intense, John admitted. Like you, he thought, but he kept that to himself. Esme sipped at her second drink, visibly savoring the taste. Aye, she said, a bit more of her accent creeping into her voice. The perfect drink, whether you're celebrating or commiserating. She raised the glass in front of her face, and her eyes glistened in the dim light. So, here's to the daughter I'll never have. She threw back the rest of the drink, closed her eyes, and smacked the empty glass back down on the bar. Can I ask you something? John asked. Esme waved a hand permissively. Have you thought about adopting? There's a lot of good kids out there who could use a good home. John had, in fact, met many such boys and girls in his encounters with the juvenile correctional system, before Artax had taken him on as his apprentice. Esme nodded slowly. I have thought about it, and it might come to that now. But... She looked down at the empty glass. Her hand twitched toward the bottle again, then stopped. It's the magic, she said, more quietly. A child of my own body, my own blood, would have the gift. She'd get it from me like I got it from Leah. She'd be strong. I could teach her to use that strength. I could pass on what was given to me. Lots of kids who end up in the foster system have majory, John pointed out. Sometimes the parents don't know what to do with a kid who can do magic. Sometimes they hate him for it. He looked down at his own glass, took another swig of whiskey. Is that what happened to you? Esme asked gently. Your parents turned you out because you were a mage. John sighed. Not exactly. They knew I couldn't help being born a mage. They just didn't want me to actually do magic. Wouldn't let me join a guild. They said magic was too dangerous, that it caused nothing but trouble. They thought that I could just leave it alone, not use it. Pretend to be normal. But I couldn't stand not being what I was. He took another drink, shrugged. So I ran away. Got my collar removed on the street. Started learning magic from whoever would teach me. Esme put a comforting hand on his arm. And that's when you met Artax. John snorted. Well, first I got arrested. Spent some time in juvie. But yeah, he was like my parole officer. I hadn't committed any other major crimes. Not that they knew about, anyway. So I was eligible for this program to earn my novitiate's license. After I completed the basic program, Artax took me on as his apprentice. He allowed himself a small smile. Best thing that ever happened to me. I can believe it. Esme said. Did you ever reconnect with your family? John shook his head. Nah, they were pretty clear how they felt about my choices. Hells, now I'm a fugitive. I can hear Dad now. What did I tell you? Magic, nothing but trouble. He pitched his voice in a deep, pompous bellow, then slammed his palm on the bar for emphasis.
Esme laughed at the impersonation, but her expression quickly grew serious again. She leaned in and covered John's hand with her own. Can I give you a bit of advice? John's skin tingled where she touched him. He turned his hand over and squeezed hers. Sure. Don't let the silence grow for too long between you and your kin. It's like a hedge. At first it's just a little thing, not much of a barrier at all. You could step right over it if you wanted to. But it gets higher and thicker the longer you leave it alone. Soon it starts growing thorns, so you can't even touch it without it hurting you, much less break through to the other side. Next thing you know, it's too high to see over, and then you're all but dead to each other. She averted her eyes, then grabbed the bottle and poured herself another drink. John's own emotions were a tangled knot inside him. He did miss his family, sometimes, as much as he tried not to. He especially missed his kid's sister, Clara. She'll be in high school soon, he thought. I wonder if she even remembers me. He raised his own glass toward Esme. Well, here's to screwed up relationships with our parents. Let's hope we don't make the same mistakes. Amen to that, Esme said, clinking her glass against his. They drank. John was starting to get a little lightheaded. We should probably order some food, or Artax is going to have to come drag us out of here. Esme snorted. You metamorians. No stamina at all. That's not what my last girlfriend said, said John, and then covered his mouth with his hand. Oh, gods. John, you idiot. Tell me you did not just say that. But Esme let out a peal of delighted laughter. She leaned back on her stool, swaying slightly, and put her hand over her heart, chortling. Then she leaned forward again and slapped his back, hard. Oh, well played, Master Tunstall. We'll make a Sathmorn of you yet. Then she slid her hand behind his head and kissed him. If John had felt tipsy before, the kiss made him feel utterly intoxicated. Their auras crackled and tingled as they wrapped invisibly around each other. Their Amalan traded mana between their reserves, which John felt as a surge of warmth rushing in and out of his core. He opened his aura sight, taking in the dazzling web of emerald green energy that surrounded him, flowed into him, merged and mingled with the deep red energies of his own aura. Our own little holiday light show, he thought. But another thought followed fast after that one. There's something weirdly familiar here. He broke the kiss and sat back, looking up and down at the shimmering lights of Esme's aura. He squinted and stared. Esme looked at him curiously. John, what is it? Something. I saw it earlier in the scope, but I didn't know why it looked strange to me. Artax didn't think it was anything. He held out his hand. Here, cover me with your aura again. Esme smirked. So forward. But she took his hand and extended her aura until it covered his arm up to the elbow. John closed his eyes, directing his attention away from the light show and toward the feel of the magical fields around him. There was something in her aura that he'd encountered before, something both strange and familiar. He concentrated on that peculiar arcane signature, 
holding it in his mind like a mantra, emptying his thoughts of anything else. He traced the pattern in his mind's eye, over and over, and let himself drift. And there, in the recesses of his memory, a pair of penetrating green eyes looked back at him. But they weren't Esme's. He opened his eyes with a gasp. Esme was watching him with an expression of confusion and concern. We have to talk to Artax, John said. I think I just figured out where you came from. The light was still on in Artax's study when they got back to the shop. John knocked firmly on the door. Master, we need you. Go away, Artax shouted. I'm working. Please, sir. I think I'm on to something with Esme, but I need your help. I am helping, Artax said, his voice softer but still sounding annoyed. If you'd leave me till morning, I'd be happy to assist you then. You should listen to Master Tunstall, ma'am, Esme said. You know the reason you're upset is because you're out of ideas. It won't hurt anything to try one more. There was a moment's silence. John imagined Artax sighing in exasperation. Fine. Come in. There was a soft click, and the door swung open. Artax sat at his desk under a reading lamp, with piles of books, scrolls, and parchments laid out all around him. He set down a large magnifying glass and looked up at them, his normally sharp blue eyes looking watery and tired. What is it, Master Tunstall? John took a deep breath. I want to try something with the thaumoscope. It should only take a few minutes. Master Tunstall, we've already gone over Esme's aura in excruciating detail. I know, sir. But you know what you said about having blind spots where Esme's concerned? I think that might be literally true. Artax cocked his head and looked at John quizzically. After a moment, he started getting to his feet. All right, boy. You have engaged my curiosity. Lead on. They went back down to the lab and powered up the thaumoscope. John turned to Artax and gestured at the stool. Have a seat, sir. Artax's eyes flickered to Esme for a moment. She nodded, and he sighed and sat down. John adjusted the scopes as Artax had taught him, focusing them on the Amala behind the old man's forehead the one associated with perception, and especially with a wizard's aura sight. Artax's aura was blue-white, brilliant and intense, and it took John a minute for his eyes to adjust to the glare. Once his vision had acclimated, he zoomed in and scanned over the swirling, interwoven lines of mana. It only took him a couple of minutes to find what he was looking for. A tangled snarl of lines, like a series of small knots, which made an intricately shaped hole in Artax's aura. As he zoomed in even further, John saw that each of those knots was bound with what looked like slender green threads, impossibly fine, like spider silk, and just as strong. There! He beckoned to Esme and stepped aside for her to use the scope. Look at that! Do you see that? Esme put her eye to the scope, adjusted the fine focus knob slightly, and then gasped. By the stars, that's a curse, and a damned subtle one, too. 
Artax's eyes snapped wide. Someone cursed me? How in all the hells? He stopped short, his mouth hanging open. A look of horrified realization spread across his face. There is something strange in Esme's aura, John said. Something that would give you the answer if you could see it. But somebody put a curse on you so you wouldn't be able to see it. They literally gave you a blind spot about your daughter. Esme's eyes narrowed. She looked at Artax. Who would have wanted to hide the truth about me from you? John crossed his arms. There's only one answer that makes sense, sir. Are you going to tell her or should I? Artax's eyes flashed with a mixture of emotions. Anger, betrayal, pain, guilt. He clenched his fists. Why would he do this? He said, his voice low and hoarse. Why? He? Esme asked. He who? Was it my father? No, he... But then Artax's face turned white, as another realization hit him. It was, John knew, the same thing that he had realized, as soon as he understood why Esme's aura felt so familiar. Artax slumped on the stool, his eyes staring at nothing. Oh, he whispered. I think we'd better give him a call, John said. I'd say he owes you both an explanation. John got the honor of making the call, both because he had the number in his mobile phone and because Artax didn't trust himself to speak. It was answered immediately, and John was not at all surprised to discover that his interlocutor was already in town. He arrived at the shop's back door within ten minutes. John opened the door to a handsome man of indeterminate age and medium height, with pale skin and short brown hair that faded to blonde near the tips. He had a neatly trimmed goatee and bright, emerald green eyes, and he wore a double-breasted green woolen greatcoat against the winter chill. He smiled broadly at John. Good Yule, Master Tunstall. His voice was bright, clear, and strong, like a stage actor's. Good Yule, my lord, John said, bowing his head in deference. Please come in. The man stepped inside and removed his coat, revealing an immaculate green business suit underneath. It is a pleasure to see you again. How are you getting on with our tax? Everything going well, I hope? It's been mutually beneficial, sir. Just like you said. John raised his eyebrows, though I don't think either of us were expecting this. The visitor laughed merrily. <laughs> no, I suspect not. He handed his coat to John, who took it and folded it carefully over his arm. Well, let's get started, shall we? Artax and Esme were waiting for them in the sitting room upstairs, with a fresh pot of herbal tea. Artax stood as the visitor entered and bowed his head. Esme gazed at the man with obvious skepticism. This is him, Esme asked dubiously. I thought he'd be taller. Artax cleared his throat. <clears throat> my lord, may I present my daughter, Esmeralda Rose Freeburn. He paused, then continued. Esme, this is Lord Klepnos, the trickster, who, apparently, is your father. 
At this, he gave his visitor a glare that might have seemed deeply inappropriate to direct at a deity, even a fallen one. John, however, knew enough of Artax's history with the god of fools to understand that look completely. Klepnos chuckled and clasped his hands over his heart. Oh, I have been looking forward to this for a long time. May I? He gestured at one of the armchairs. Please, Artax said dryly. Klepnos sprawled in his seat, hooking one leg over an arm of the chair. Now then, I'm sure you have many questions. Since you were so clever as to solve my riddle, I'll even answer them. Artax and Esme sat back down as well. I'll go first. Why didn't Mam know you were my father? How was I conceived? Klepnos smiled indulgently. Liam became Leia at my instruction. The reasons for it were many, and went deeply into psychological matters that are, frankly, only of interest to him. But part of Leia's journey necessitated becoming a mother, so I put her in touch with a fertility clinic in Sathmore. Where they fertilized me with your sperm, Artax said, glaring at him again. Yes, Klepnos agreed, blithely. Why didn't you tell me? Did you think I would refuse you? After all you did for me? On the contrary. If you had known you were carrying my child, you would have been overwhelmed by the responsibility. Raising any child is burden enough. Raising the child of a god is more than should be expected of anyone. Hearing herself described in those terms seemed to be a little more than Esme knew how to deal with. John saw her take a slow, steadying breath, in and then out again. So you put a curse on Leia. You blinded her so she couldn't see your marks on my aura. Indeed. And as for you, my dear daughter, I fitted you with a bit of mm, supernatural birth control. Take it from me. It is unwise to go about conceiving little godspawn until you were quite aware of what you were doing. Esme raised her chin obstinately. And what gives you the right to make that choice for me? To decide what I can do with my body? Klepnos looked genuinely perplexed. Esmeralda? I'm a god. Artax tossed his head in a conceding gesture. Esme, though, crossed her arms. That's as may be, but you're not my god. No, but I'd like very much to be your father, Klepnos said, his voice suddenly devoid of levity. He put both feet on the floor and leaned forward, fixing her with those penetrating green eyes that were so much like her own. Esme, all your life you have lived in ignorance of what you are. Up to now, this has been all to the good. Believing you were mortal, you learned immortal's ingenuity and resilience. You were deeply loved, but never coddled, and because of this, you have grown up strong. He extended a hand to her, palm open. You learned much from your mother, and even more on your own. You are ready now for the lessons I would teach you. To harness your divine power. To control it, instead of it controlling you. Esme looked from Klepnos to Artax. What do you think, ma'am? He lied to you. He used you. Artax looked up, and John thought he saw the weight of the old man's years weighing on him more heavily than usual. Aye, but he also saved me. My life has been his since long before you came along, 
and he's never done anything to me that wasn't for my good. He reached over and took Esme's hand, gripping it tightly. I know I've not been the best parent you could have asked for. I had to put my own interests and yours behind my lord's commands. But you're the light of my life, child, and you never would have existed if not for him. He smiled faintly. He's an old scoundrel of a god, make no mistake, but he's earned my faith, and he'll earn yours if you let him. Klepnos bowed his head, very slightly, and gave Artax a two-fingered salute. You did well with her, Liam, as well as anyone could have asked. I'm proud of her, and you should be too. Artax nodded slowly, still looking at Esme. I am. You haven't walked the path I might have chosen for you, lass, but I'm still proud of all you've become. Something in Esme's face and body language softened then. She closed her eyes and took another deep breath, in and out. John imagined what it would feel like to hear those words from his parents. It would be the best damned Yule present in the world. At last, Esme opened her eyes again, turning her attention back to Klepnos. So if I let you be part of my life, if I let you teach me, you'll undo the curse, on both of us. Of course, Klepnos said. What will it look like? Esme asked. What am I committing to here? Klepnos seemed to consider the question. For the first year, let us say three nights a week, for an hour each night, and day-long sessions once a month. We'll spend that time working on the basics, what your power can do, how to access it, how to use it responsibly. I recommend you wait until these preliminaries are finished before you try to conceive. You'll need time during the week to practice with your abilities, and as your own mother can tell you, your time is no longer your own once you have a child. Esme considered a moment longer, then nodded. All right, I accept. Klepnos rose to his feet and stepped around the coffee table until he stood beside Esme. He placed one hand on her forehead, then leaned over and did the same to Artax with his other hand. John felt a brief, subtle flicker of magic pass between them. He wouldn't have even noticed it if he hadn't specifically been looking for it. And then the trickster withdrew his hands and spread them, like a magician finishing a trick. And done, he said. Come on, then, how's about a big old family reunion hug? It is the Yuletide, after all. Esme and Artax exchanged a skeptical look. You know what they say, Artax sighed. You didn't choose your kin. Aye, Esme agreed, wearily. Then they rose, and the trickster wrapped his arms tightly around them both. To their shared relief, Lord Klepnos did not invite himself to stay the night. After sharing a cup of tea with them, during which they spoke only of trivialities, the trickster bade them all good night. Artax was having some trouble with his knees, so Esme and John showed Klepnos to the door. The fallen god gave John a firm handshake and Esme a peck on the cheek. Then he saluted them both and strode off into the night, whistling a yuletide carol. A light snow had begun to fall, and the snowflakes swirled and danced around him as he passed. He's an odd duck, isn't he? Esme observed once he had gone. Yep, 
John agreed. Always wondered what sort of a man my father was, Esme mused. I wonder if this is how Joshua felt when he found out. John snorted. I'm guessing that was a little different. Aye, like it's not. But just the same, there's a weight to it. Who am I now that I know I'm his child? How does that change me? She shook her head. A gift like that? Being the trickster's daughter? Could be that's more a curse than a blessing. They fell silent for a time, watching the falling snow. In the distance, John could hear a song playing from the PA speakers. For lo, the days are hastening on, by prophet bards foretold, when with the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold. The song brought back to mind the warning Klepnos had given Artax at their last meeting. There is a time, just a few years from now, when all prophecy fails. All of it, Artax. The gods look, and we see nothing. The world was reaching a tipping point. What that would look like when it came, John had no idea. But he knew Klepnos was trying his damnedest to make sure things tipped the right way. Artax's mission was part of that. So was John's. And so, too, he suspected, was Esme's. I think you're looking at this the wrong way, he said. Esme turned her head to look at him. She said nothing, but her eyebrows quirked up in question. Look, it's like the magic, right? We were born mages. It wasn't something we chose. It wasn't even something our parents chose. My parents saw I was a mage, and all they could see were the problems it would cause, the trouble it would bring. But your mother saw it as a gift, and she taught you to use it, to value it, to respect it. Because it's who you are. Esme's expression grew pensive. That's true, she conceded. I've never been afraid of my magic. Maybe being a god's daughter isn't so different. John grinned up at her. You know what? Even before we knew who your dad was, Artax told me yesterday to watch out for you. He said you were a trickster. Esme made a sound that was somewhere between a laugh and an indignant snort. Oh, did he now? She turned and slipped her hands around John's waist. And what sort of trickery did he tell you to be wary of? Oh, he wasn't specific. John reached up and placed a hand on Esme's cheek. She leaned into the touch, and slowly, John slid his hand behind her head. I guess he figured that a brilliant, gorgeous experienced woman like you could take advantage of me in all sorts of ways. Hmm. Esme stepped forward, pushing up against him, then pushing his back against the open door frame. Her hands held him tight, and she lowered her face until it was bare centimeters from his. Her breath came hot against his face, and those brilliant green eyes seemed to flash with a dangerous light. You don't seem too worried about being taken advantage of, Master Tonstall. For a long moment, John just stared into those eyes, hardly able even to think. Then he closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and showed her his brashest, most carefree smile. I'm not afraid of tricksters. I've gotten close to two of them already, 
and it seems to work out for me pretty well. Then he leaned forward and kissed her. She responded instantly, pinning him to the doorframe as she answered his passion with her own, a growl of desire sounding deep in her throat. Their tongues danced, and he ran his fingers through that long, glorious red hair, and all sense of time and space drifted away. When at last they came up for air, Esme drew back and looked him squarely in the eye. Is it true what you said earlier? She said, breathing hard. What your girlfriend said about your stamina? John grinned. Try me. Oh, she said, I intend to. She shut the door and led him upstairs. The shop called Holiday Treasures did not open again until four days after the winter solstice. But for John Tunstall and Esme Freebairn, it was a bright and merry Yule indeed. The End And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. I recorded most of this episode before I left for my vacation in Michigan, but this last part of the episode was corrupted, and I had to re-record it. So, since I have to record this on Sunday night anyway, here's a quick weekly writing report. I wrote 4,047 words this week, over the course of six hours, for an average writing speed of 674 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this update, I've gone 88 days without breaking my chain. I'm now more than halfway through Chapter 48 of The Lost and the Least. After last week's slow going, the words flowed more easily this week, though I didn't get as much time to write as I had hoped. The manuscript is now up over 156,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. My fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2016 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corfid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.